Man, well, hello, church. Feed open to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that your friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so, Father, the only lawgiver and judge, the one who saves and destroys, we come to you. You have spoken. You have given us this word. And, Lord, we need help in our marriages. We need to be equipped to deal with conflict and to make peace and to reconcile. And so, Lord, would you equip us now and would you change us through your words so that we would be doers of these things and not hearers only. We pray it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. We start uh, today, uh, week eight of this series on the glory of marriage, and I'd love to spend three or four weeks on this topic. We're going to spend just one. Uh, we're going to talk about conflict resolution and, and biblical peacemaking in marriage. Um, I never ask couples, uh, do you have conflict in marriage? I only ask, are you equipped to deal rightly and wisely with your conflict. Uh, Because every marriage has conflict, Uh, it can't be avoided. The question is, have we been and are we equipped to deal with the conflict that will inevitably enter into all of our marriages? And so this sermon is not just for those really struggling marriages. Uh, the, The sermon is for every marriage, because every marriage and every spouse must learn how to deal rightly with conflict 
And I don't know of a passage that deals more uh, holistically with the topic than James chapter 4. There's a lot here, and I want to walk through these 12 verses uh, this morning under under three questions. Here's the first question that I think we need to ask and that the, the text answers for us. Why are there marriage conflicts? That's a good place to, to start. And I think the answer seems easy at first. Well, there's two sinners. Marriages are made of two sinners. Um, that's true. But why are we sinners? And I can, I'll, I'll give you a hint. It's not your body. It's your inner person. It's your heart. And so the conflicts in marriage are not because of uh, disagreements on big decisions coming up or, uh, or money stresses or circumstances and external uh, situations. It's not because we can't communicate well. Uh, the conflicts in marriage are because something has gone wrong in the heart. Uh, Jesus said this in Luke 6.45, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so here's why, why I bring this up at the beginning, because uh, the recent, some recent statistics on marriage show, show that 86% of divorces, uh, they would say that the cause for that divorce was a, a, an inability to communicate, communication problems. I would say that that number is too low, it's probably higher than that. But what they mean by communication problems isn't that they couldn't formulate sentences you know, that they couldn't rationally communicate an idea verbally. What they mean is what James 3 says, their tongues are fire. That's that's the communication problem that brings about divorce. Look at James 3, 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among Our members staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and marriage, set on fire by hell. And so uh, James isn't saying it's possible to completely control the tongue, but he's not saying, he's not saying it's impossible to control in any measure the tongue. We can control our tongues more than we think we can. I got this... uh, illustrated for me one time, and this is years ago, I saw uh, a woman kind of verbally just uh, slandering and and criticizing her husband, and she was arguing this is somewhere in public, and then she gets a phone call. Hello? Hey! You know, uh, changed the tone, changed her emotional state. I mean, if you would have asked the woman, why are you yelling at your husband? She would have said, I can't control myself. I'm so angry. Well, apparently she could control her emotions and her tone and her words and did so in a split second when the phone rang. We can control our tongue better than we think we can, but we'll never control it, according to James, with perfection. Um, And so that's why marriages have communication problems. Uh, Our problems in marriage are many times communication problems, which makes a lot of sense when you read this passage. Look back at James 3 again, verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to also bridle his whole body. Look at verse 8. No human being can tame the tongue. 
It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Does that make it okay? No. He says, brothers, these things ought not to be so. But they are so because Jesus said, from out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So someone may say, well, how do we control our words? Well, that's not James' point right here. He's not teaching us how to control our words. He's just saying the words are problems, and the words are problems because the heart is a problem. And, and that becomes uh, even clearer as we look at verse 14, chapter 3. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, where? In your heart. In your heart. Heart problem. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Conflict in marriage, demonic. Verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So conflict opens the door in any relational context, but especially in marriage, to all sorts of disorder and vile practice. Now, if we keep reading, which we should, out of chapter 3 into chapter 4, in the original, there's no chapter divisions. These uh, thoughts flow right into chapter 4. And James is a master biblical counselor. And look at the question that he opens with. This probes the heart. It draws out the heart. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. That is not an amateur counselor. That is a master counselor who understands the human heart and understands the importance of good questions. Uh, I, the first time I uh, received probably the best question that anyone ever asked me, uh, that pierced me at the heart at the deepest level, was my counselor. Uh, shared Again, I've shared this many times, but me and Priscilla, eight years into marriage, ran into a really big marriage issue. Uh, we sought out counsel. So that was seven, eight years ago now that this happened. But that counselor was sitting with me at one point. Priscilla was off uh, somewhere else. I'm sitting alone with this counselor uh, at their house, at the, the, the dinner table. And he says this, John Mark, what do you want so bad that you're willing to sin to get it. And, and, he, and he had to ask that a few times before I really saw how deep that question went. What do you want so bad that you are willing to sin against the Lord, against your spouse, to get what you want? James understands that to deal with marriage problems, we don't need atheistic Freudian psychology built off faulty anthropologies and understandings of the human. We need good questions rooted in biblical anthropology that can draw out the heart. So he asks you and your spouse the same question. What causes Quarrels and fights among you. Is it not this? Your passions are at war. Verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
maybe not physically, verbally, from the heart, with thoughts, a lot more murder happening in marriages than we'd like to admit at the heart level. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I am convinced that that many, maybe most marriage problems are a result of the inability to see ourselves rightly. We we cannot see ourselves rightly. I said last week, uh, most marriage problems are because we don't center God. But the flip side of that is not only that we we don't center God, but we center ourselves as God. Those are two sides of the same problem. Um, and, and we don't even see that we're doing this because we like to Christianize our motives. So here's how this sounds. And here's what we tell ourselves: Well, I'm upset at my husband because he's not the spiritual leader I want him to be, that God wants him to be. I'm upset at my wife because she doesn't submit to me as God tells her that she should submit to me. I'm upset at my spouse because they don't handle money or entertainment or responsibilities as God would want them to. I'm upset at my spouse because uh, of who they are. They aren't who God wants them to be and who they should be. Therefore, I'm mad at them. Now, that sounds very spiritual and Christian because we brought God into it. And we say, well, God's my motive. I'm just wanting for them what God wants for them. But here's what we're really saying. I'm willing to sin against God in my anger toward my spouse because my spouse isn't godly enough. (laughs) Doesn't sound as spiritual. Because they're not godly enough, I'll become ungodly because they're not godly. See how non-spiritual that sounds at that point? It sounds like self-deception is what what it sounds like to me. Uh, And so back to that question that the counselor asked me, John Mark, what do you want so bad that you're willing to sin to get it? And I couldn't escape that question. I couldn't do what Adam did in the garden. It's It's the wife that you gave me. I had to just let it expose my own heart. Because that counselor was asking me what James is asking us, which is really what God is asking us, What causes you to fight in your marriage? Is it not your passions at war with one another? You want, he wants, she wants, and they're just the wants and desires are warring. And again, the self-deception works practically like this. You ask a man or a woman, what's the problem in your marriage? And they very smoothly, you know, uh, very sophisticated ways, blame shift, point to the other person, but it'll sound like this. Well, I know I have problems, but they don't do this. They do this. They keep doing this. So look, the most carnal, wicked, God-hating person is happy to say, I, I have problems. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but blame 95% of it on the other person. Anybody, anybody's willing to do that. The person who thinks once my spouse gets fixed, most of my problems in marriage will go away is either very deceived or 
naive, but they're not right. They're not right. Um, let's take, for example, uh, someone with multiple marriages, and I'm talking many multiple marriages. Let's say the first marriage. Get married, high hopes, things start going bad. For whatever reason, they divorce. After a period of time, they find another spouse. Things are going good, high hopes, things start going bad, they divorce. And this repeats multiple times. I actually talked to a man once who was on his fifth marriage, and he said to me, <laughs> I, I, I actually said to him, I said, five marriages, wow, you know, why? Uh, and he said, I can't find a good one, meaning the spouse. And I, here, I didn't say this, probably should have, but I thought, what's the one common denominator in every one of your failed marriages? It's you. <laughs> it's amazing how we miss this. And, and I know, guys, look, who doesn't want a perfect spouse? Who, who doesn't want a spouse to come up and, and be servant spouse and say, what is every need and desire? And multiple times a day, they come up to you and say, what can I do for you, honey? My only purpose for existence is to serve your every need. That's the dream spouse of any selfish person. But I can tell you, living with that type spouse does not fix your problems of selfishness. And the moment that that perfect spouse wants something different than what you want, now you're warring at the desire level again. It's exactly what James is talking about here. The, the competition of two kingdoms, the kingdom of self versus the kingdom of self. His wants versus her wants. To use Paul Tripp's diagnosis, both people are living for the kingdom of self with self on the throne and a marriage with both people sitting enthroned as lords of their life and of their marriage are going to hit continual relational conflict. And so God says to this, uh, this arguing, struggling, prideful, selfish people, look at verse 4. You adulterous people. It's interesting he uses a marriage term. Which I think tells us that God views our relational struggles as spiritual adultery. He views our relational struggles and conflicts as spiritual adultery. Which leads to the second point. That sounds serious. What do we do about it? What, what do we do about our marriage conflict? Uh, do we avoid it or confront it? And I think many would push back on my question and say, uh, pause, you can't frame the question like that. Because marriage conflicts are too complicated. There's too many variables. There's too many circumstances and situations that play, and you can't just say, avoid or confront. It's too complex. And what I would want to say is, I agree that marriage conflict is very complex at the relational level. 
but I would disagree that the Bible doesn't set forth a very simple plan for conflict resolution. It, it does. You don't need a master's degree in psychology. You don't need an advanced degree in interpersonal communication to figure out how to solve conflict in your marriage. You don't. God has been very clear with us, which goes back to the question again. Do we avoid or confront marriage conflicts? And I would say 100% of the time, you confront. Never avoid. And I'm not saying that off my own experience. I'm not saying that because of some sort of statistics I've read about marriage. I'm saying that because what is the purpose of marriage? What, what are our marriages? Are they not illustrations of Christ in the church? And God always lovingly, wisely, and patiently steps into conflict in order to restore the relationship. We talked about this on week two, actually, of this series, uh, Christ's War for His Bride. This is, this is the practical part of that bigger theme. And I said in that sermon uh, that the whole Bible is about marriage. You see on page one, a marriage. You see on the very last page of the Bible, marriage. The whole plot line of the Bible is marriage. God is pursuing a bride for himself is the storyline of the Bible. And he's winning her heart. He's pursuing her. He's freeing her from her enemies. He's entering into conflict to reconcile her to himself. And lest we think that's one-sided and the bride isn't doing anything, we know Revelation 12, verse 11 says that she loved, or, or the church, loved unto death. Loved the groom, loved Christ unto death. So she's willing uh, to, to remain faithful to her covenant, to her husband, to go to the death. This is illustrated in martyrs. Martyrs of the church illustrate how far the bride is willing to go to remain faithful to the groom. It's, what I'm saying is, it's not just Christ pursuing the bride, it's the bride pursuing and, and entering into conflict to remain faithful to Christ. It's both people fighting, even in the midst of conflict, to keep the marriage together. Which means we can't do this, guys. We can't say, I don't like conflict. We just avoid that in our marriage because it stresses us out. It doesn't ever produce anything good. We, we just don't do that. You can't say that. Because Christian marriages are to reflect Christ and the church. And Christian marriages see conflict, listen, as opportunities to love one another. Christian marriages are, they view conflict that comes into our marriages as God-ordained opportunities to love one another. Conflict in marriage is a God-ordained opportunity to not just love each other, but to see the grace of God coming down from God into the worst moments of our marriage. It's an opportunity. And I get this from verse Five, do you suppose <clears throat> it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he made to dwell in us? 
The word spirit there is pneuma. <clears throat> Everybody recognizes that. There's no debate on the word there. Uh, it's, it's pneuma. But the ESV, the KJV, and the NIV translate pneuma as lowercase spirit. The New American, uh, the NASB, the, the New King James, the LSB, the HCS translate pneuma, capital, uppercase spirit. And you say, well, which one is it? How do we figure this out? Context. The context gives us what spirit is being talked about here. And I would side with Erasmus, Calvin, even Schofield, many, many commentators talk about this being the Holy Spirit, capital S, Spirit, is being referred to here. So do you suppose it is for no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit, as in the Holy Spirit, that he has made to dwell in us? And I get that meaning because of what immediately follows verse 5 when it says this, he gives more grace. So the Holy Spirit brings about or is the source of that additional grace. So it would read like this in the context. You can't, as a Christian couple, remain in conflict in your marriage, biting and devouring one another because God jealously yearns for the Spirit of God He's put in you and He will give you more grace so that you don't remain in the conflict, but that you make peace. That's what I think he's saying. The key idea here is yearns jealously for us in our marriages in the midst of relational conflict so that we don't destroy each other. He gives more grace so that we can love each other. But it's the jealousy. This is how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 11.2. I feel a divine jealousy, jealousy for you. He, he says, I feel God's jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband and to present you a pure virgin to Christ. Uh, so one author called this a po the positive value and godly necessity of jealousy in marriage. Positive value. Godly necessity of jealousy in marriage. Another author called it holy jealousy. That this is actually a good thing. And we see it in its perfect form in God Himself. For example, uh, Exodus 34, 14, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord your God, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So God doesn't just act like a jealous spouse. He is a jealous spouse. He says, my name is jealous. And therefore, I act with a holy jealousy for my bride. God's jealousy is central to the character of him being a loving God. His jealousy burns against all hindrances to his covenant love with his bride. So here it is again in Song of Solomon 8 uh, verse 6, set me as a seal upon your heart, a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death and jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. It connects jealousy and love. Love 
Uh, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly destroyed. Jealousy and love, divine jealous love of God does what? It causes him, it causes God to be willing to die for the one he loves. And it's not just, listen, it's not just that Jesus used to be jealous for his bride and therefore he died. It's that he as a resurrected and ascended and seated at the right hand of God's Savior, is still jealous for his bride. That's why he gives us more grace for our conflict. Ed Welch really put it a lot simpler than I just did. He said it this way. God's jealousy means there will be more grace for you. God's jealousy means there will be more grace for you. For you, which we, I mean, it's really our greatest need in our conflicts in marriage. A jealous God for our holiness and purity who would give us more grace to handle and reconcile those conflicts. And all this leads to the third and final thing, the practical part of this. How do we, how do we reconcile a relationship? What does it look like to receive this grace from God and then when it hits the ground, when it enters our heart, when it gets in us, that grace gets in us, what does it practically look like? And I, and I see four things right here in the rest of this passage in James 4, and it starts with this. You bow. The, the first thing we do when conflict comes is we humble ourselves before the Lord. We humble ourselves before the Lord. That's what receiving more grace practically looks like. Look at verse 6. God opposes the proud, but does what? Gives grace to the humble. He gives what to the humble? He gives grace to the humble. So our first thing we need to do when we run into conflict, if we want to get more grace, humble ourselves. It says in verse 7, submit yourself therefore to God. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. What does it look like to humble ourselves before God? Because many people would say that they are doing that. The question is, are they doing what this passage says? Are they submitting to God in obedience? Are you drawing near to him in his word, in prayer? Submitting your wants and desires to His. Submitting your will to His will. Are you doing that? Now here's where it gets interesting. What's the flip side of that? Of submitting to God? I would argue it's resisting the devil. That's what it says here. Verse 7, resist the devil. Resist the devil. The devil. I think those are two sides of the same coin because he's in between submitting to God, drawing near to God, humbling yourself before God. He says, resist the devil. As if they're two sides of the same coin. As if when you're submitting to God, you're at the same time resisting the devil. Which sounds, it sounds really similar to another verse that is relevant. Ephesians 4.26 that says this, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Do you realize that undealt with anger 
can actually open the door in your life and marriage to the devil. But if you want to welcome Satan right into your home, just avoid dealing with conflict in your marriage. If you want demonic hindrance in your marriage, keep telling yourself, they're wrong, they're the problem, not me. And guys, many Christians, what do we do? We say, man, we, we guard our home from the devil. We don't watch these shows. We don't listen to this music. They don't go to these schools. We're all about guarding our kids from evil. We're all about keeping them from the devil. Not realizing that our undealt with conflicts could be opening the door to the devil more than any other thing we could expose our children to. I mean, as parents, we would lay down our lives to protect our kids from perverse offenders, from, from vile criminals. But the Scripture says if you don't deal with your conflict, you're welcoming Him in your home. I, I got this illustration when I was a youth minister for a few years before I was a pastor. Um, and there was a lot of broken homes that I, was, I would go and minister to the, to the youth. And um, you say, why were they broken? Was it because their parents let them listen to bad music? Was it because they went to bad schools? Well, those things probably did not help at all. But I would argue that the primary reason those were broken homes is because they had to constantly listen to their mother and father mistreat one another. See a connection here? Ephesians 4.26, Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Do not give an opportunity to the devil. Which I don't think, uh, sun go down in your anger, I don't think that literally means you're in sin if the sun goes down and it gets dark before you fix your conflict. Like, oh man, if we would have done, dealt with this 10 minutes ago, the sun came down earlier than I realized. You know, I don't think that's what it means. I think this is an ancient proverb that applies to relationships to basically say reconcile immediately. Don't take time waiting for the other person to pursue you. You pursue them. Deal with it right now. And let's say there's a stubborn person here who goes, well, what happens if I don't? Well, here's what happens. Bitterness. Bitterness is what naturally happens in the heart of someone who lets the sun go down on their anger. Bitterness is the bad heart fruit produced by someone who doesn't make peace. Bitterness is probably the hardest problem I've ever tried to help a married couple through. And I've tried to help married couples through some really bad stuff. Bitterness is probably the worst. And bitterness is formed. You say, well, how does that even happen? Well, bitterness is formed when you uh, over and over and over again ignore dealing with conflict, ignore forgiving, ignore making peace, ignore reconciling. So you, you get offended at, at them for something and then you just you push it down. And then you push it down, and then it happens again, and you push it down, and you push it down. And what you're actually doing is not pushing something down, you're storing it up. You're storing up anger in your heart. 
That's literally what bitterness is. It's anger stored up over time. And so here's how you practically know if, you're, if you've become bitter at your spouse. 95% of the time, you're fine. You're like, we're not bitter. We're, we're good. 95% of the time, we're fine. Yeah, but what happens when they do, they do that one thing that angers you? And it's a really small thing. But you treat it as this mountain of offense. So a really small offense becomes a mountain of offense because you aren't just talking about that little issue anymore. You're talking about this mountain of undealt with anger that that little thing gets tied to. That's what bitterness is. And this is why we must look at number two here. And I'll hit these ones quicker. You must come clean. Verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Weep over your unreconciled relationship. Weep and mourn over the conflicts in your marriage. Why? Because they're not what they should be. It shouldn't happen. Weep, mourn, and simultaneously, this is a weird thing for people to get their mind around, weep and mourn over your conflicts, over your brokenness, and blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. So we're blessed, we're happy. Why? Because we're given the grace to actually deal with the thing. Because God gives you as His people grace to actually do these two things. Confess your sin and repent of your sin. There's no shortcuts in our marriages, guys. There's no way to work around the necessity of continued confession and repentance. And not confession and repentance over something that you did five years ago that you already confessed and repented of. Confession and repentance over the thing that you did that day. And that you keep doing. This is so hard. It's so hard. Uh, we, We need to pray the Lord's Prayer. I advocate this all the time. Built into the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Just pray that every day over your own heart. Pray that God give you a clean heart toward your spouse. A pure heart toward your spouse, those prayers are not in vain. He will soften your heart and help you to humble yourself before the Lord, which is resisting the devil, and to confess and repent of sin. And then number three, get wisdom. Chapter three uh, mentions wisdom three times in the context of conflict and peacemaking. I want to just show us this again. Chapter three, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is uh, is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be every sort of disorder and vile practice. But verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first, here's what we need, pure, then 
peaceable, then gentle, then open to reason, then full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's the type, that's called wisdom. All of that stuff that would actually make for a marriage where you could deal with conflict. That's why we need wisdom. It's, it's how we understand how to be peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. How we are filled with mercy and good fruits. And I'm advocating that we seek out wisdom rather than uh, a wise counselor. Let me just press, we talk a lot about counselors and praise the Lord for counselors, but you know what you need more than a biblical counselor? You need wisdom. So you don't have to call the counselor and be like, hey, what do I do? I'm in a fight about this. I'm arguing with my spouse about this issue. What should I do? And they say, well, okay, you need to do this, 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 and this. You know, if you had wisdom, you wouldn't have to call them. You would actually know what to do. You would actually have the capability to pursue peace, to be full of mercy. That's what we need. We need wisdom. The, the difference between my, uh, me and Priscilla's marriage from a year into our marriage and now is an experience. It's that God has been merciful to give more grace in the form of wisdom so that we're learning how, learning in the process of learning how to give more grace, to be full of mercy, to be peaceable, to be pure, And it's amazing how many Christians don't understand this. Say, how do, how do, what do you mean? Well, we'll say things like, oh, you've been married for 30 years? You've been married for 40 years? Teach me. You know, just because someone's been married 30 or 40 years doesn't mean that they've got a lot of wisdom. They've got a lot of experience, and maybe they could give you the wisdom of not how to sign the divorce papers because they've managed 30 or 40 years not to do that. But just because they have a long marriage doesn't mean it's a good marriage. A good marriage is someone who has received wisdom that makes them all of these things that it's saying. Experience doesn't automatically give wisdom. More grace from Christ does. And so I'm talking about a type of wisdom, guys, that isn't this generic caveman wisdom, ooh, touch the burner and my, it hurts, uh, provoke my spouse, and it goes bad. Something you could train an animal to do, an animalistic impulse. I'm not talking about that type practical worldly wisdom. I'm talking about a wisdom coming down from God, specifically equipping us to deal with conflict with our spouse. That's what's being promised to us here. That's what we need. And it says, verse 18, this wisdom would provide a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if you sow peace, sow peace, sow peace, are you going to reap destruction and disorder and problems in your marriage? No. If you sow peace and sow peace and sow peace, you're going to reap a harvest of righteousness. That's what it says. And this leads to the last point. Once we've humbled ourselves before God, confessed and repented of sin, we've sought wisdom, we have to remember the judge isn't us. You are not the judge of your spouse. That's where he goes here. Verse 11, 
The one who speaks against his brother and judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you were to judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a, but a judge. And listen, verse 12. There is how many? Only one. Only one lawgiver and judge. Not you. It's, it, it's amazing how easily we want to just step into God's role of being the only judge and be a lawgiver and be a judge to our spouse. And we'd never say it. We'd say, yeah, of course God is, the, God is my spouse's lawgiver. But we act as if we can sit next to Him on the throne and give laws. We, we'd say, God is my uh, spouse's judge, but we sit next to Him as if we are the judge. And so let me set you free from that this morning with verse 12, which says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. Take a deep breath. That's a relief. It's not you. That's not the role you play for your spouse. You're not their lawgiver or their judge. The weight released that people put on themselves that would just be gone, the freedom to just allow God to take that role. For many spouses, that's the best news that you could hear. That God is your spouse's only judge and that His verdict toward your spouse is innocent, forgiven, guilty no more. And so what's my job? Agree with what the judge said about my spouse and don't hold, withhold forgiveness. If God's forgiven them, I forgive them. If the judge forgave them, I forgive them. What is forgiveness? It's canceling the record of debt. If God has done that for my spouse, I must do that for my spouse. And this is a terrifying reality as well for those of you who know God is your spouse's only judge and He has at least at this moment in time judged them guilty because they've rejected Christ. And if that's where your spouse sits, at least in this moment, why would you want to add additional judgment? Why would you want to add additional laws that they can't fulfill because they're not even seeking to fulfill the other ones. Wouldn't we want to try to demonstrate through our actions, through our words, there is a lawgiver and judge. He's the only one. But this lawgiver and judge, it says right here, is also he who is able to save and destroy. He's able to save. He's still giving mercy. He's still issuing forgiveness. Look, it, it, whether, whether your spouse at five years old began to love the Lord or whether at 50 they're still not loving the Lord, it does not change your role. It, doesn't, it does not change what we do. Your job is the same. Your role is the same. Your approach to conflict is the same. You humble yourself before the Lord. You confess and repent of sin. Take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of theirs. You get wisdom, and you remember your spouse has one judge who saves and destroys, and you act in such a way, guys, 
to say he's still welcoming sinners. He's still forgiving sin. He's still canceling the record of wrongs against him. And because he's still doing that, I'm willing to do that for you. I want to have this take us to the table, this thought that grace comes from God, mercy comes from God, He's welcoming in sinners. This table pictures that, doesn't it? Reminding us of the blood and the body of Christ. He continues to prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies in conflict. Uh, If you're new, now, we do take the supper every week. Uh, we believe the Scripture teaches that Christ has given this to those who have received Him by faith, who have been baptized into His name. And if that's you, please join us. Uh, if you'll be refraining in your bulletin on page 2, there's some meaningful prayers uh, you can pray. And let me say as well, if you want to talk about Christ, if you want to talk about any matters of salvation, myself, Pastor Kent, We'll be around after the service. We'd be happy to speak or pray with you about any of these things. Let's prepare our hearts uh, to go to the table. Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate peacemaker. He knew how to reconcile a conflict. And He did. And we're happy And we're thankful and we want to imitate Him. Lord, we pray that as we come to the table, You would strengthen us. You would renew us. Lord, You would refocus us on our calling as we get up and leave here. We pray You would do these things for the good of our spouse, but even more for the glory of Your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.